my heart will sing no other name Jesus Jesus my heart will sing no other name Jesus Lord I'm running to your arms I'm running to your arms the riches of your love will it's always, always be enough nothing compares to your help that God really wants from us in this life? From our earliest days, most of us come up with an idea of what God is like. A picture we create from our varied experiences. Our home life, our days in school, our time in sports and work. All of them teach us that God asks us to do certain things for him. And then he rewards us accordingly or scolds us if we fail. It's as if God was our teacher, or coach, or boss. And it's as if all we can expect from him is what we earn from him, right? God loves us because of what we can do for him, right? But what if that image was incorrect, even disrespectful to God? Wouldn't he be good to let that image shatter so that he could remake it into a clearer and better picture of who he is? That's what happens in Luke chapter 15. Jesus encountered a group of people who had an image of themselves and of God, where God owed them for their hard work. So Jesus shattered their portrait of God and then remade a new one. He told them of a father who loved his children, both the bad and the good, of a father who welcomes his children, both the rebellious and the obedient, of a father who seeks after his children and invites them to celebrate his mercy. That's what Youth Camp 23 is all about. Plus this. So that is Youth Camp. We would have handed out to you some information cards, but um, Aldo faithfully printed them up for us, and then we faithfully mailed them to other churches. <laughs> so Aldo is going to faithfully mail a few more for us so that you, the cobbler's kids, can be shooed as well with information cards. They're going to look uh, not like that exactly. They're going to look like the other one. That's what they'll look like. They'll have some information on the back that, uh, that you can use. Those will be available next week, right, Aldo? Thank you so very much, Aldo. You're a great man. And Ashley, I know they are going to use those extra cards that we didn't quite think about the fact that we were going to need. So that'll, that'll all work out for us. That said, um, we will have a link in the email for Youth Camp today. Uh, early registration starts today. It'll end in June, so you've got a little while to go. 
Um, but I would say nobody will be able to sign up faster than the Penix, who I got an email from the camp director saying, who are these people? Because we haven't opened up registration and they've already <laughs> signed up. And so I say to Curtis and Micah, well done. First registrants. There is an early registration discount, but there is no early, early registration penalty. So you are okay. You still get the discount. Everything is good. That said, kids, we are going to dismiss you at this point to children's ministry. And then Curtis, our faithful registrant, is going to come up and read the passage that we'll be looking at together. All right, please join me again uh, for the reading of God's word. This is from 2 Chronicles chapter 6, starting with verse 12. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. Solomon had made a bronze platform, five cubits long, uh, five cubits wide, and three cubits high, and set it in the court, and he stood on it. Then he knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or in earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled in this day. Now, therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk in my law as you have walked before me. Now, therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David. But will God indeed dwell with man on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea. O Lord, my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you. That your eyes may be open day and night toward this house the place where you have promised to set your name, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place and listen to the pleas of your, the pleas of your people Israel and your, of your people Israel. When they pray toward this place and listen from heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Father, hearing a prayer like that, we recognize how many times we want to be consciously depending on you. Father, we realize that forgiveness, the ability to come and be right before you, the work of justifying your people and making the unholy holy, 
not letting our sin corrupt you, but you transferring your holiness to us. This has been the story of what you have done from the garden on. And so, Lord, we, we join ourselves to this prayer that we just heard. In this place, at this moment, because of your spirit, we pray that you would do amazing things among your people. Open our eyes, soften our hearts. Help us to see your glory in your written word. That we might walk out of here different, holy. We don't want to be a common people this week, Lord. We don't want to fall into the stream of worldliness around us. We want to be yours and to represent you. To help us to understand what you have done at the temple to make that work. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm glad for our guests. It is good to have you guys. I'm glad we could celebrate like this together today. And if you were not with us last week, we've just started uh, seven weeks that we are going to be looking at different mountains in the Bible where we see how God met with his people. And we're trying to not rush through the story of that in Scripture, but really to appreciate in each moment what it is that God was doing the way that he met with his people at that particular phase in time. So last week we were at Mount Sinai. We know that there at Mount Sinai, if you've seen any of the, the Ten Commandments kind of movies, you know that's where God's people were gathered to hear God's law. But um, we, we also had an opportunity last week not to be able to sort of think from our New Testament perspective about the ways that some of the things at Mount Sinai have been, um, you know, kind of present throughout time and how some things have been reversed. What we tried to do, what I asked us to do, was to encounter Mount Sinai the way the people of God would have encountered Mount Sinai, as former slaves, as those that were a part of pagan deity that were in charge of them for centuries, and now they've come to a mountain. How would the Israelites have experienced that? That was how we tried to experience Mount Sinai last week. And I think, relatively, we were, we were kind of successful. We're going to fast forward through time a little bit now, because after Mount Sinai, the story continued. God's people were there. It didn't end well at Mount Sinai, did it? Moses went up into the dark cloud. When he came back down, the people, having been so terrified by what they saw of God, decided to displace God. The God who had defeated all of their old gods from Egypt, they decided to displace him and to replace him instead with one of their, their idols, a golden calf. God was not pleased with that decision. They had heard the Ten Commandments spoken to them from the mountain. They said, we can't even bear this kind of a God. Moses, you go up. And because he was up into what seemed like the scary pinnacle of this peak, then he had to, uh, he had to have died according to the way they were thinking. And so they needed someone to lead them back to Egypt. And that golden calf was going to be the thing to do it. The first time that the people of God encountered God on a mountain it just didn't go great. From there, they wandered in the wilderness for a generation. 
From there, they made their way into the land of Canaan through, through um, Joshua. From there, after Joshua died, the people realized that the idols of the nations around them, in their minds, made them strong. And so they adopted the idols of the nations around them once they were settled into their new land. This, this story hasn't like just you know, been one of Israel's success to success to success. By the time that the book of Judges is over, they're kind of a scattered people, leaderless and godless. The two stories that mark the end of the book of Judges are just dreadful. There's brutality and adultery, idolatry. There's just immorality all over the place. And the Israelites looked and came away from that and said, we need a king, which is sort of right. But much like the decisions we make apart from God, it has echoes of being right, but it wasn't fully right. The Israelites did need a king. The problem is they wanted that king to have all authority in human form. And so Samuel, the kind of the last of the judges and the one who was to bring about the kings, he brought in a king, and it didn't work out great. And then he brought in another king, one that God said was a man after his own heart, King David. And King David set up his, his seat of power in such a way that he was trying to unite all these tribes together. He was from the southernmost tribe, Judah. And he set up his kingdom, not down in Judah, so that the northern tribes would feel like, you know, oh, wait, what's David doing? He's, he's not our king. Saul was our king. Instead, he very strategically decided he was going to make his home base in Saul's state. He moved to where Saul was from, and he set up his home base right there. Now, the reason that I tell you all that is because where he set up his home base was a particularly significant mountain. We know it as Jerusalem, but before that, that mountain in the Bible had been a spot, more than likely, that Abraham had had Isaac walk up whenever he was going to, uh, he was going to sacrifice Isaac. You remember that story out of Genesis? It was called Mount Moriah back then. Just like when we saw Mount Sinai last week, I told you there was another name for that at some occasions, Horeb. That mountain was sort of known by two different names. Mount Zion, or Jerusalem, the city of David, this location that David's choosing strategically to be his seat of power so that he can take the 12 tribes and bring them together so that he's not just the king of the south, like the Texas of Israel. He could actually be like the real king over everyone. His political decision brought him to a mountain of great significance. Now, that's about the palace. We're talking, though, about Mount Zion because of where the temple resides. And so what we have to do is go back through that entire story from Mount Zion and talk about the temple that Israel was using during that time. But we didn't call it a temple, did we? Because the Israelites from Sinai wandered for 40 years in the wilderness and then from there conquered a land, but didn't have any real capital seat of power for any of them. And then during the time of the judges were such a, a leaderless and kind of scattered people, more like disparate states than really one main country. There was one place, though, that you could go where you would find God. 
where you would find God's presence most significantly known. In fact, the way that the Israelites wandered all through the wilderness was because of what God had told them on Mount Sinai. He didn't just give them the Ten Commandments. He also gave them particular laws about how sacrifices would work, how priests would dress and function, and where God would meet with his people. And that wasn't at a temple, a building. It was at a tent, or what we read in the Old Testament as a tabernacle. The tabernacle itself, we can often think, because it's so significant, we can think that, you know, the, the moment of coming to the tabernacle or even coming to the temple that Solomon was dedicating in the prayer in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, that it was this immense thing, kind of the way that we think of the temple of Jesus' day that Herod made, but it wasn't. The tabernacle was smaller than our building here, and the temple itself was even smaller than what we have here. 60 cubits, if you ever read that word, probably easiest to just think a foot and a half. It's probably, it's hard to know exactly where it was in terms of inches because it was generally the distance from, you know, fingertip to elbow. Well, that's my cubit. You've got a different cubit. You know, cubits grow as you grow. So trying to think of what that really represented in real terms for us, if you hear 60 cubits, the length of the temple, just kind of multiply that times 1.5, you get about 90 feet. Our building is roughly about 90 feet. Now, it's about 45 feet from there to there. It was 20 cubits in width. The, the way that the temple that we're reading about here had something on us is that it was about 30 cubits high. So that, that was a pretty tall building. But the tabernacle and the temple were designed about the same way. The tabernacle had a tent that was inside a courtyard. And the only people who could come into the courtyard and operate in there were the people who were the Levites, one of the 12 tribes. They didn't have any land. Everybody else got settled in different spots, but the Levites didn't get any land because they were always going to be right around that tabernacle. So wherever the tent was picked up and moved to, in the wilderness, that's where Israel went. How do you know when to pick up the tent and move it? Pretty straightforward. There was a cloud in the daytime, and there was a pillar of fire in the nighttime. And then when that was set up over top of the tabernacle, then the people know, oh, we're supposed to stop. Set up the tent and stay here. But when the cloud or when the pillar of fire would sort of pick up and start to move, the Israelites realized, oh, it's time to pack up the tent, time to get going. So for 40 years from Sinai, that's how they moved around in the wilderness. Whenever God wanted to lead them up into the land, it was the Ark of the Covenant, one of the things inside the tabernacle that the Israelites used to kind of make their way through. Now, sadly, over time, the Israelites began to treat that a little bit more like an idol itself. But the tabernacle itself was, was pretty cool. It had a great big courtyard. Everything out in the courtyard, the outdoor furniture, it wasn't made of gold. It was made of bronze. But really, there were two big things in front of that and the front yard, so to speak, of the tabernacle tent that you would have come to. And they had everything to do with sacrifices. There was a great big sink, what they called a bronze basin, and that was for washing the priests, cleansing them of the blood that would take place when they were sacrificing, and from that, then a bronze altar. The bronze altar was pretty ornate. It had horns on it, but it was for one purpose, killing animals. The bronze basin was for one purpose, cleansing the priests. 
And so all around, if you were to ever notice what was going on in the tabernacle, you would have seen a stream of people coming, offering a sacrifice, because the visible aspect of the tabernacle was to always represent that for God to dwell among his people, blood must be spilled. When we pick up from the tabernacle to the temple, the exact same thing is happening. It's a temple, it's made of stones, and it doesn't have an outer sort of fence made of you know, material the way that the tabernacle would, but the, the temple had exactly the same outer courtyard and the exact same purpose. There was a bronze altar and there was a bronze basin. And if you went to the temple, just like if you were looking at the tabernacle, then, hey, this is the way things work. God can be with his people. People can be with God if there is blood spilt for the forgiveness of their sins. What you wouldn't see is what was going on underneath all the cloth of the tabernacle, inside the tent, or inside the temple itself, because that wasn't just for the Levites, that was for the priests. There were sort of a way of thinking of the inside of the tent and sort of a third, two-thirds principle. The first two-thirds of the tent were filled with three different things, and each of them represented an aspect of Israel's relationship with God that the priests were supposed to maintain. There was a table, and on the table were pieces of bread, loaves of bread, 12 of them, those 12 representing each of the 12 tribes of Israel. They were to be the people of God, sort of as a symbolism. They were supposed to be the people of God in the presence of God. And so they were supposed to be sort of, uh, you know, baked freshly, and then they would be eaten by the priests and replaced with fresh loaves. Not exactly the best picture of who we are in God's presence, is it? We're not permanent. We will be here. We will fade. We will be replaced. The people of God perpetually in God's presence, but perpetually being replaced in God's presence. The second thing that was in there was a lampstand. It was the presence of God among the people, and there was particular shape and style to it. We would think of it sort of like a menorah, if you were ever to think of Hanukkah and that sort of thing. That Hanukkah celebration comes from the entire point of that candle, that lampstand being there, the light of it was the only light that you would have in that first room that would be about twice as deep as it was wide, about the same height as it was wide in the, in the tabernacle. And in there, you have the people of God, bread, perpetually being replaced, the light of God never going out, and then one other piece of furniture. And it was just an altar of incense. It was a particular breed of incense, it wasn't supposed to be used for anything else. If the priests liked the smell of it, they couldn't take that recipe and use it at home. It was supposed to just be for that room, and it was supposed to represent that these people, these temporary people, in the presence of a holy God, needed to have prayers being offered for them all the time, and the altar of incense represented those prayers. There was one place, though, the second or the last third of that room that no one was supposed to go, except for one priest once a year. That one day was marked by far more sacrifice, far more pomp, far more circumstance, a lot like when the people went to Sinai and there was all this preparation, make sure that you don't do this, make sure that you don't do that, make sure that you are just coming to meet with God on this one day of the year. 
the priest would, the, the high priest would come into not the holy place, that first room, but to the holy of holies, where the most holy place. And in that setting, he would approach the Ark of the Covenant. That Ark of the Covenant, that altar of incense, that lampstand, and that table of bread, all of those were in the temple as well. Now, it seemed to the Israelites, because of the sign, the symbol, the significance of the tabernacle, that if this represented the presence of God, it also represented the power of God. So that when the Israelites were making their way into Canaan, God said, we're going to go around Jericho. What was it that led them around Jericho? It was the Ark of the Covenant. But as I mentioned before, the Israelites, in drifting from God, exalted the pieces of furniture more than the presence of God. And at one point, even lost, they were losing in a battle, brought the Ark of the Covenant into the battle. Remember, they hadn't been worshiping God. They hadn't been following God, but they thought that the trinket of God would bring the power of God into this battle. And so they took the ark, they marched it in the battle, and against the Philistines, the Philistines were like, oh no, this is that thing, that thing that knocked down Jericho, that thing that has made the Israelites strong. Philistines, let's rally together. And they defeated the Israelites and they stole the Ark of the Covenant. That day led to the death of the high priest. He heard the news, he fell back off of his chair and his neck was broken and he died. It marked a moment for Israel in which Israel had asked the question, have we been thinking right about God? Has God's power faded? Did the warranty kind of, you know, expire on the Ark of the Covenant? Why is it? Do we need to recharge this thing? What's going on? The reason I tell you this rambling story is because we from our perspective all the way back, can look back on this and we can kind of complete the edges of things. We can say, we know how this ends. We know what it's supposed to be. We're talking about the temple and you're probably like, yeah, I know, we got it. We just went through Mark. We know how Jesus is the replacement for the temple. And I'm just saying, just hold on for a second. The scattered people from Sinai who leave Sinai in the defeat of their own idolatry wander for 40 years, led by God, make their way into a land. <coughs> and then once they get into the land, reject God over and over and over. The people who left Sinai don't go from Sinai to Zion with a record of their strength and their faithfulness and their victories. They go from Sinai to Zion with a horrible track record. They failed him there. They forgot him here. They doubted him here. They replaced him there. And they lost God in a battle. How do you do that? The only way they get him back is that God fights his own battles. They put God into the temple of the Philistines, and he's just knocking over their idols. So much so that in a bizarre way, at one point, the idols... Uh, the idol of the Philistines falls down in front of the Ark of the Covenant in their temple, and his head is off. His hands and his feet are off. Kind of God going, mm, this thing doesn't work for you. The Philistines, so dedicated to their own false form of religion, decide, we got to get that Ark out of here, and we better pay homage to our to our idol. And so when they found his like hands and feet laying on the door, the threshold of the door, they came up with a practice after that point. 
We never step on the threshold of the door anymore. Whenever we come to a door, we hop over it. Why? Because we have to honor our fallen idol. That's the Philistines. How do the Israelites get the Ark of God back? The Philistines don't know what to do. They know that everywhere that the Ark of God comes, they're getting sick, they're getting boils, things are not going well for them. Their idols are falling over and falling to pieces. They're still committed to their defeated idols, but they know they got to get the Ark of God out of here. So they just decide we're going to put it on a cart. We're going to take two cows that want to go back to their calves because they're, you know, they're, they're nursing cows. And they instead say, well, let's just see where the cows take them. And the cows take the Ark of God all the way back up to the Israelites. By the time that happens, Israel is so confused. They have been scattered from God, disobedient before God. And so by the time that the ark of God finally arrives back where David, this king, who's kind of getting himself set up in his palace on his new, uh, his new mountain, brings God back up, there's great celebration. He brings the tabernacle to as close to his palace as he possibly can. And then he wants to build a temple, and God says, no. You are a bloody, bloody man. Your son's going to do it, though. And so at some point, the presence of God is going to come back to the palace of the king. And God will finally arrive, not from Zion, or sorry, not from Sinai, but to Mount Zion. And that's the moment that King Solomon, David's son, is finally celebrating and praying about. What we're going to do is we're going to drop into 2 Chronicles chapter 6. But do you feel the weight of history behind this moment already? If we just try to just jump from one mountain to the next mountain and forget about all the garbage of the valley, we're going to just really be failing to understand the significance of this moment. If we just think that the Israelites of 2 Chronicles chapter 6 are the exact same Israelites who were like, oh, well, yeah, I remember when in the wilderness, God would just kind of, you know, bring his presence down on the tabernacle. Same kind of thing's happening here. Israel's failed God so many times for so many generations. And now the question is, will God once again dwell with his people? Let's listen to the story. Curtis started reading for us in chapter, or chapter uh, 6, verse 12. I want to go back a little bit because what we see at Mount Sinai, this mount of temple worship, I think it shows us what we long for in life. So listen as the way that the temple kind of being set up and prayed over is established for us. Because I think the first thing we're going to see is that we long for grandeur. Listen to the description. Thus, all the work that Solomon did for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things that David, his father, had dedicated and stored the silver, the gold, and all the vessels and the treasuries of the house of God. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the father's houses of the people of Israel in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled before the king at the feast that is in the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came and the Levites took up the Ark and they brought up the Ark, the tent of meeting and all the holy vessels that were in the tent and the Levitical priests brought them up. 
King Solomon on all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him, went before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, under the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark so that the cherubim made a covering above the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside, and they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets that Moses put there at Horeb, which, remember, we know to be Sinai, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. Do you see why the history matters? Would God once again come back to such an unfaithful people? Would they who had failed to appreciate God, to revere God, would they be worthy again of the presence of God? We would say no. But would he come anyway? Would God actually show up anyway? It's been four years that Solomon has been building this temple. It had been a lifetime for David before that in planning to get God back towards the holy city once again. We read, Curtis read for us earlier, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Psalm 24. Who is it that gets to make their way up to God? What What is that psalm asking about and echoing? It's saying, who is it that gets to come up to the mountain? Who gets to come to this pinnacle? It's the king of glory over and over in the psalm. The only one worthy to ascend this hill is God. But will God do it? Solomon's hoping so. He's he's hoping so. He's desperately hoping this is going to work. This had been David's desire. This had been the longing of the people and the thing that they can at least contribute to the moment. They can't bring the presence of God, but they can bring some spectacle. They can bring some grandeur. They can bring some sacrifice. They can bring some people. They can bring a very splendid temple and they can bring everyone there. Did you hear just all the alls, all the groups. It's verse three, all the men. Verse five, all the holy vessels. Uh, Verse six, King Solomon and all the congregation who had sent before him. They sacrificed so many things that you couldn't even count the sacrifices. What's happening? There is a spectacle of size and weight that's coming to this moment. Can Solomon bring the presence of God? No. But he can bring the people. And he can bring a moment. And I love how that just the first, the, the, the first 10 verses kind of end when he's just saying, let me just tell you about the poles. They were really big poles. I don't know why that detail feels so significant, except for to say this. If the poles are that big, that important, then what they're carrying must be even more significant and important. 
Because you probably remember the part of the story I didn't tell you. Remember the ark coming back from the Philistines to the people of God once again? It was on a cart carried by a couple cows. And the Israelites, because they really weren't in touch with what God was asking for, had failed to remember that the ark was to be not touched, not carted, but carried by poles. And so at a moment when the cart was coming up to the people of God, after it had been received from the Philistines, they still had it on a cart, and one of the oxen stumbled. And so a man reaches out to kind of steady the ark of God so that he wouldn't be able to, like, you know, it wouldn't fall, and he drops dead. Why? Because this isn't just any other box. This isn't just special because of what it's made of. This is special because of what it represents. The people see the guy die, and they're terrified. David, for a while, realizes, like, I can't bring God to my house. If we touch him, we're going to die. And so they keep it at somebody else's house. And it's only after he sees that God is blessing that guy that David wants to bring him back up to his palace. And they just bring the tent at that point. David's sacrificing everything's big and spectacular. Solomon's just doing the same thing. But they got the poles right. The poles were that big. The poles were that significant. But what does this communicate to us? At least at a very basic level, don't you want to be impressed? I go to the Grand Canyon not because I'm a geologist, but because I'm a worshiper. We go to see games played. We watch them not because we're athletes, but because we're worshipers. We look for things to be impressed by. And 2 Chronicles 6 sets us up for this moment by saying, he's the one you should be impressed with. If you've been impressed in other places, not this isn't the biggest, I told you, it's not the biggest building ever. It's not the most beautiful building ever. But what could happen in this building would be the thing that we would be more impressed by than anything else we've ever seen. We are people made for grandeur. We long for grandeur. In 1 Chronicles 29, when David is ending his reign and setting Solomon up, here's what he says. He says, I have provided for the house of my God. Who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? He's talking about money. I've given a lot of money to set up God's temple. Will any of you join me and do the same thing with me? And then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly for with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord and David the king also rejoiced. Second Chronicles chapter 7, after this prayer, talks not just about David's rejoicing when God's brought to him, but Solomon's rejoicing on the other end says, Then the king and all the people offered sacrifice before the Lord. King Solomon offered as a sacrifice 22,000 oxen and as a sacrifice and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. I don't know what happens to you when you hear like the national deficit or our debt or big numbers. I, I, I tend to be like, whoa, 66 million. Wow, 3 billion. Whoa, 66 million? 
I, like, I get confused by numbers. Three billion is way bigger than 66 million. But somehow, you know, I just get, they get thrown out there. I read this, and th that might be the same sort of thing. But I don't know. How many oxen do you think we could fit in this room? Probably not 22,000. If we stuffed our church, could we get 1,000 oxen in this building? 22,000. 120,000 sheep. Now, that's not the way we did our grand opening here. <laughs> but can you imagine this moment? Why? Because God is bigger than anything else. People can only represent this so well, but it's what we're longing for, and it's what this story is setting us up with. You've come to a God who's impressive. But more just than us longing for God's grandeur, his greatness in front of us, we also long for God's goodness. Listen to what happens next. Verse 11. When the priests came out of the holy place, for all the priests who were present had consecrated themselves without regard to their divisions, and all the Levitical singers, Asaph and Heman and Jaduna, and their sons and kinsmen arrayed in fine linen with cymbals and harps and lyres, stood east of the altar with 120,000 priests who were trumpeters. It was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison and praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments and praise to the Lord. Now, pause for a second. This has got to be some good song, right? Why? Because what is about to happen? They've taken all of these priests. You see everything in parentheses there? It starts in verse 11. Basically, the sentence reads like this. When the priests came out of the holy place, and when the song was raised. But that's not the way he tells it. He doesn't just say, oh, the priests came out. He says, let me tell you about the priests. You know some of these guys. Asaph, you, you've heard of him. That, that guy, he was part of this moment. And some of the others, Heman and Jethunan. Oh, man, I'm just not good at names. But it's not just those guys. It's their sons, their kinsmen, and they were decked out. They were dressed in their fine linen, and they had the cymbals, and they had the harps, and they had the lyres. There were 120 priests who were just playing the trumpet. I know! I mean, what is this song got to be all about? That you got to be wearing that. You've got to have this many people. They got to be the right people from the right families. They've got to have this many trumpets in order to play the song. What song would be worthy of that kind of preparation? This is going to be some sort of like puritanical hymn, right? You ever heard some of those Christmas carols? We sing like three verses. And then you go and Google it, and you're like, this thing got 16 verses? Oh, my word, what were they doing? This has got to be one of those hymns, right? This has got to be one of those songs that just goes on forever because of how amazing the song is. Why? Because they're wearing the right stuff. They're the right people. They're wearing, they brought the right instruments. Here's the song. For he is good. That's the song. His steadfast love endures forever. There are no more lyrics. That's it. But to sing of my goodness does not require a harmonica. It doesn't. Maybe Ryan's little tin whistle, 
You can bring that out. Hey, that thing Darren did was kind of nice. That's what it's worthy, because my goodness ranks as one tin whistle. This is not my goodness we're singing about. This is not you being impressive that we're singing about. This isn't you choosing not to cheat on a test. Oh, that was good. Oh, you shared with your sister. Oh, that was good. This is the source of goodness that we are singing about. We have come to the fount of every blessing in his pure, unadulterated goodness, and we need every one of the best singers. We need all of the best clothes. We need all of the powerful instruments. So we're going to come together and with one voice, we're going to say this, for he is good. That's what we're singing. There were some good songwriters in this day. One of the last episodes of The Chosen was all built around a psalm being sung, chanted and, and recited. Beautiful picture of how a psalmist is coming before King David and saying, what what do you think of this one? This this is what we're working on. So you kind of wonder, man, if this is the song and if this is what it's worth, I mean, who gets the credit at the bottom, right? CCLI number this, written by, hmm. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. Him is Moses. Where did this song come from? Who was who penned it? It wasn't us. These aren't our words. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Exodus 34. Those are God's words about God to God's people. You love fickly. I am steadfast in my love. That's what I mean by good. That my love can't be exhausted. That my love can't be tested beyond my ability to endure. That's what I mean by my goodness. See, God just doesn't give us a word and then let us define it. God gives us a word. The Lord is good. What does that mean? It means that he never stops loving. You can't exhaust his capacity. And in 1 Chronicles 16, this was the song that David had sung when he brought the ark of God. When he set the tabernacle up into his mountain, on that day David appointed that the thanksgiving be sung to the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Would we be tempted if we're Solomon to think, oh, good job, you're singing dad's song. You're singing David's song. If David were there at that moment, he'd be like, hey, it ain't my song. These are his words about himself. We're just remembering. Do you want this so desperately in life? Do you long for somebody to be decently good to you? And you long to be decently good. And every week we prove we're not. And every week we find the limits of somebody else's love. 
every week we have a reminder there is only one God. And when the moment comes for us to sing to him, we want to find the same kind of energy and strength and zeal and preparation as what Solomon and all of his singers are bringing before it. We've got one line we're going to sing, people, for he is good. Then we're going to define it. His love is steadfast forever. That's our song. That's kind of boring. Well, then you don't know God. Because you've defined God by the way other people have treated you. Or you've measured God based on your own strength. And that's not the way this equation works. We've come to the fount. We've come to the source. We long for grandeur. We long for goodness. And oh, we long for glory. Verse 11. When the priest came out of the holy place, mm, right? Then the long parentheses. And when the song was raised, and we know what the song was, in praise to the Lord, the house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud. It happened so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. It happened. Can you imagine being Solomon at this moment? He knows history. He knows the way that Israel screwed up. And he's set everything up. He's got the song ready. And he's wondering, is it going to work? Will God actually dwell in this place? Or is that just a tabernacle thing? I have no promise what is actually going to happen. It worked. He set it all up. He set up the song. They sang the song. And God, boom, descends on the new building. The glory of the Lord filled the house of God. And Solomon prays. Will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less this house that I've built. Yet you did it. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you, that your eyes may be open day and night toward this house, the place where you've promised to set your name, that you may listen to the prayers that your servant offers to this place. And Lord, when... You hear, forgive. The, the prayer goes on. I am ending at in kind of the middle spot, but I want to end here. Because you know how much you test the limits of the goodness and love of God. You know you're not worthy to dwell in this place. You know, like Isaiah, that when God is before you, you belong on your face. And the only prayer we have to experience the love and the goodness and the glory of God is not that we dress ourselves up. It's not that we set ourselves in the right building. It's not that we imitate the grandeur of God and somehow he's like, that'll do. It will only be if this prayer is answered. Listen to the pleas of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place and listen from heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. Verse seven, and as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, like I said, we skipped some, but just so you know, you can go back and read the rest. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. Set up for Brad next week, by the way, right there. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. 
And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And when all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, what would you say at that moment? Say God's words. He is good. His steadfast love endures. But I submit that these guys didn't know the half of it. Because Solomon had prayed, when you hear our prayers, then forgive. And the book of Hebrews tells us this went on for a really long time. Prayer after prayer, year after year, day of atonement after day of atonement, enter into the holy place after enter the holy place, sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. Would you hear, would you forgive? Would you hear, would you forgive? And I submit that when Solomon prayed this prayer, God said, you have no idea how I'm going to answer this. That's what we just saw in the book of Mark. It's just John says it this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But you know this. What is that word? Dwelt. It's most literally translated tabernacled. Solomon's praying, God, would you forgive us? And God's saying, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm coming down to the house. But that's not the extent of my plans. The extent of my plans is that I, who cast my glory into creation, I, who shone my power out to sustain the world, I, who knew that, life, that mankind needed life and light was the source of that, I'm coming down as the new temple. I'm coming down so that I can truly become flesh and dwell among you. And John says, we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Last week, I, I just asked one question. I just asked it three times, though, right? Is this us? Are we encountering God the way the Israelites were? Are we impressed by God? the way that I think we're supposed to be when we're reading that story. I, I got to be honest, it's kind of hard to know how to tell this story because I want to violate my rule, guys. I do. I want to rush on from Zion and I want to finish this whole series, but I'm going away for a little while and other people are going to finish the story with you and it's going to be fantastic. But if we're here and we're just in this moment, what is it that the people of God are experiencing, I think, at this right moment? They've got to be impressed by God but I gotta think that right then they're grateful. They're just grateful that they get to enjoy God's presence because a sacrifice was made so that he could dwell among them. I just ask this, how much more ought we to be grateful because what we know? The story's gonna make its way, but at this moment, shouldn't we be grateful because he's still good and his steadfast love still endures? Let's pray. Father, we are so very grateful. We just ask that you'd make us more grateful.
we remember, we just ask that you'd make us less forgetful. Lord, we are impressed. We just pray that you'd open our eyes from the thin slit that they're open right now so that we could see a little bit more. Open our ears so that we could hear a little bit more. Because, Lord, we're going to go and we're going to imitate the Israelites between these two mountains. We're going to fail in our valleys. And we're going to need to remember that you're good and you're loving. We're going to need to remember that we haven't exhausted your grace. We're going to need to remember that which we can't remember without your Spirit's help. And so I pray, help us to be grateful for what we've received. And help us to be less forgetful than we were last week. That you provided your Son who dwelt among us and made a way for us to be with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What we're going to do is we're going to take communion together. The, uh, the ushers are going to come and they're going to distribute the elements. You guys can stay seated for the first part of this. They're going to sing a song for us, with us a little bit, and then I'm going to come back up in the middle of that song. So the ushers can come now and begin to distribute the elements for us. to him the God of light from the mountains by his might all praise to him who names the stars 